Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm... And I'm... We're just three gals that like to sit around, drink coffee, and talk about... True crime? True crime. And today, we're going to kick it off with part two of Richard Speck. Grab your mugs tight and get ready, because we start with the manhunt. Drew crime, do crime. It was part do. Mm. Oh, I don't yeah, want to. Wanna... Part do crime. But I don't want to do crime. He's doing. Oh, crime. right, right. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. doing the he's crime. Doing he crime. did it. He's owing the crime. She's do. D e a u. Do crime. Do crime. Do crime. Do crime. I think there's an X there. D D D Ah, the manhunt. The police took to the streets right away. They figured the murderer must be someone who was at least familiar with the area and may still be close by. Some other folks who joined in on the search were Acting Lieutenant Victor Vodoliak, Sergeant Mike Clancy, who was from burglary, Edward Walensky, John Mitchell, and Edward Boyt. Cora described the man as six feet tall, blonde hair, 160 pounds, and with a southern drawl. Edward W. spoke to an attendant at a nearby gas station. This was one known to be a place where some shady people would regularly hang around. The attendant said that he heard one of the managers talking about a man who left some bags there two days prior, and that this man was also complaining about losing a job and missing a ship. The teams checked out the Merchant Marine Hall, which was only a short walk from the crime scene. It was, of course, incredibly crowded with people trying to get to work or, you know, find jobs. They were able to question the agent there, but the agent didn't recall anyone who matched Cora's description. They returned to the gas station clerk, and this time they made him get a hold of the manager, who was asleep. Dick Polo woke up and told the police that there was a man matching Cora's description that left bags and complained about missing a ship and losing a job. Dick Polo sent them to a rooming house over on 94th and Commercial. So the police ventured over there. They looked at every cheap hotel and rooming home and every 24-hour tavern. Edward W. knew the area incredibly well. He knew where the more dangerous folks would be, and it was only a mile away from the crime scene. More police joined in, making more teams to cover the area. But unfortunately, they found nothing. Edward W. went back to the hall and sought out another lead. He was successful. The agent remembered an angry dude who lost a job. Luckily, they dumped the trash can and a crumpled up assignment paper was still there. The agent also recalled him having a southern accent. The name on the paper was Richard B. Speck. They got the file on Speck from the Union Hall's records and matched his description with one from the gas station manager and Cora's. They also checked to see if Speck had a record already, and he didn't. Locally. So, where the heck is Speck? Speck... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm proud of that. Speck got to... Where pe- in the world is... Oh, no, that's a little bit of work. Richard Speck, Speck, the idiot. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> 
Speck got to Pete's tap at 10.30 a.m. He was clean and well-rested. He had this massive hunting knife just hanging on his belt when he walked in because, you he know. He had a little penis. <laughs> Is there listen, any other reason why No. do that? Listen, there are tons of really incredible people probably with little penises <gasps> that are not true. doing stupid that things like murdering tons of nursing students. That is true. That is true. Because yeah, they that know how to use true. it, and they don't need to talk about it. These See. guys are like, I got, I don't even know how to use it, but I got this hunting knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'll kill people. But I'll kill you. Um, it wasn't the same knife that he did the attacks with, though. He just um, showed this 12-inch knife off to everyone he encountered in this bar. Um, about a month earlier, Speck had pawned a 25-jewel watch for some booze to the bartender, Ray Crawford. At the time, he was short on cash and booze, and the booze was more important. But now he had some funds to buy it back, so he did. Then he asked Ray to keep his knife behind the bar. Feeling pretty pleased with himself, he started to tell everyone this false story about how he killed several people with the knife in Vietnam. Sure you did, buddy. Yikes. Okay. At one point, though, this tall tale takes a turn. Speck goes behind the bar, grabs the knife, and proceeds to sneak behind Ray and put his arm around his chest and held the knife to his throat. He said that this is the way he would kill someone if he had to. Ray was not impressed and let Speck know so. Speck said he was only joking and threw on his southern charm. Will he- who else was joking? <laughs> Gacy, so oh, don't trust no. anybody. Oh, <laughs> so no. I just watched oh, the documentary. Yeah, no. He's like, oh, I was, I was kidding. I'm like, he's not kidding. Get he's the fuck not out kidding. Of there, kid. Get away. If you have to explain your joke, your joke sucks. Yeah, yep. it's not funny. Like, it's yep. not funny. It's not like funny. if you have to tell people it was a joke, it wasn't a joke. You're being a dick. Like, yeah. I like when people do that and they say like, uh, like stupid jokes like that. I'm like, I'm sorry. Oh no, I couldn't hear you. Can you say it again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or sometimes I'll, I'll tell people to repeat themselves yeah. and be like, oh, no, I heard you. I was just making sure you heard yourself. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Did you hear you? Yeah. Continue on. Yeah. yeah. It's one thing if it's truly just a silly, silly, dumb joke. But if it's a joke like this, it ain't funny. Yeah. Um, be better. Be a better joke writer. Be a better like, that's joke always writer. my thing when people are like, this person couldn't take a joke. And I'm like, or maybe your joke sucked. Write mm-hmm. a better joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, William Kirkland bought the knife from Speck. The story of where Speck got it was that he bought it from a veteran on a ship. But in reality, his brother-in-law, Gene, gave it to him. Oh, Gene. Uh, Gene. Gene meant, he means well, man. That whole family just meant well. Um, The two gents were drunk and decided to keep hanging out together after the transaction. They ventured to another bar just across the street called Soko Grand. This bar was a buzz with people talking about the mass murder. This was when Speck found out he missed one. He turned to William and said, must have been some dirty motherfucker that done it. Then he changed the subject and started lying some more. He told a story about how he went and hit his brother-in-law over the head with a bottle, and that was why he got thrown out of the house after his sister gave him uh, $85, of course. I love the idea of changing the subject, being like, must have been a real dirty motherfucker. <laughs> Sports, am I right, everybody? <laughs> Like, 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 how do you just like? I know and you, segue. <laughs> what? Everyone's like, cool, cool, bro. All right. Speck then decides that he'd had enough of this crowd and meets up with another friend of his named Robert R. Gerald, or Red. They went bar hopping until Red was super drunk and needed more funds. Speck took his drunk friend to the rooming house, the Shipyard Inn, so Red could sleep. Before Red fell asleep, though, Speck just had to tell him about how he spent last night with a hooker who thought he was so good she didn't charge him. 
Uh-huh. Christ. I know. I think my <laughs> eyes are going to get stuck in the back of my head from shout rolling out. so hard. Yeah, shout out to all of our sex worker friends whose yes. eyes just rolled just rolled. The back of yeah. God. Yeah. Sorry for uh, the hospital fuck visit. Fuck you, pay her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pay her. Pay her. Uh, Speck then left Red at the inn and went down to drink more until he got a phone call. Edward W. had sent his plan in motion. He had the agent call Speck's last known phone number, which was his sister's, saying that he had had a job. Gene answered and got the news that Speck needed to ship out. So Gene said he would find Speck. So it was Gene who called the inn looking for Speck. He informed him that the union hall called and had a job for him. So Speck called the union hall to get the information. The agent said it was for an assignment on the ship Sinclair Great Lakes. Which unfortunately tipped Speck off. See, he knew that the Sinclair had shipped out days before. Guess he was paying attention to something other than his fabricated stories he told folks. Mm. He told the agent he was up north and it would take him an hour to get to the hall, but that he would take it. But guess what? He never showed. Instead, he ran back upstairs, woke up Red, packed his bags, went back downstairs, and called a taxi. Red went outside and sat on the curb, holding his head while Speck waited inside the inn at the bar. He started to play a solo game of pool. Then, three police walked in, in normal clothes, looking for a man who matched Speck's description. He did not falter, though. He just eavesdropped and kept playing pool. The police were about ten feet away from him, talking to the bartender, who was unable to help them. So the taxi shows up, and the guy yells, Commercial, which is the name of the taxi cab company. Speck finished his drink and just leaves out the side door. The cab driver is a full-time bartender who drives a taxi only part-time. And maybe that's why he reads people better than someone who maybe only drives a taxi. As a bartender, you develop certain skills to engage and get to know your customers. Whatever the case was, while he was driving, he was very suspicious of Speck. See, Speck had the driver drop his friend Red off first, saying he had a job on the Sinclair the next morning. And then he told the driver to go north, with no address, just saying that his sister lived out there, in the, quote, real poor slummy section of town. Okay, dude. They get north. Judgmental much? I know, right? Like, come on. People just trying to survive. Um, they get north, and the driver asks again for an address. Speck, who actually had no idea where he was, just points to a random building and says, There. Speck made sure the driver left, and a woman named Fanny Jo Holland was watching her husband walk to work down the street when she saw this strange man just get out of a taxi. She could even make out his tattoos. She was that close to him. She saw Speck walk towards the more trendy area off of Rush Street. Speck walked to the nicer part of town and found another rooming house. The Rayleigh Hotel was built in 1882 and was now single rooms and lacked its elegance of years past. He rented the room under the name John Staten, using his southern charm. This name actually belonged to a friend of his back in Texas. Yeah, that's that's a a person's name. (laughs) When the police found their way to the hotel later, a clerk remembered Speck, well, who he thought was John, He was drunk and with a woman and gave the clerk the wrong room number. Instead of causing a scene, he let Speck go up. It was late and he didn't want to wake up his boss. But as the elevator door closed, he heard the woman call him Richard. Then, about half an hour later, the woman came back downstairs and told the clerk that Speck had a gun. That morning, the clerk, whose name was Algie Lemhart, 
told the manager, Otha Hollinger, and she knew it was probably John Staten, and she called the police. The police showed up at 8.30 a.m. from the 18th District Police Station, only a short distance away. Speck woke up to two cops standing over him. They asked him about his gun, and a very hungover and dazed Speck said he didn't have it. He doesn't, he doesn't have that. He was laying on the bed fully clothed with the gun literally <laughs> sticking out from underneath the pillow he was laying on. Yeah. He said, oh, um, this is the hookers. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> good for her. I mean, yeah. I know. Uh, when they asked him for his name, he said Richard Speck. Oh, he didn't even cool give dude. him another name. Idiot. Way to go, bro. They checked his IDs, and because there was no solid connection yet, the police were not alerted to look out for him. So they didn't know that this was the guy. Oh, my God. I know. It just hadn't reached, you know, that area yet. Yeah, they were talking <laughs> to the other precincts. Mm-hmm. They questioned him for 15 minutes, took the gun, and left. However, the cops did not report the gun and told the clerk that Speck was harmless. What? Great. They just, they just... Okay. That night, Speck just kind of wandered around, going to different dive bars. Which, side note, I love a good dive bar. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what. Um, and then he settled in at the Pink Twist Inn. Uh, back on the south side, the police didn't even know he was gone. The Chicago Police Department asked the FBI to run his prints. Speck had been tracked down to the shipyard inn and the commercial cab. They were able to talk to the taxi driver that took him to the north side. He told them that he had dropped him off at Cabrini Green. Police rushed there with rifles. Sergeant Mike Clancy spoke with Martha Thompson, Speck's sister, um, that he'd been staying with, and was able to get a pretty good picture of where Speck had been since he left Dallas. They found Speck's friend, Red, who was actually very drunk at the time, but he was able to tell them about what Speck had done when he was with him. The police put out a stop order for Speck at the Union Hall. The police were now closer to Speck, but Speck had no idea. He was just out wandering around again and met two other dudes who were drinking. They were Claude One-Eye Lunsford, who had just made his way from Dallas, and Shorty Igram. They were rooming at the Star Hotel, and Speck decided to join them. He grabbed his stuff from Rayleigh and went to the Star. The clerk and the manager saw him, and he told them he was going to do laundry. But he never came back. Oh he likes that line. Yeah. I'm just going to do laundry. Just going to the laundromat. Laundry. I just want to see you when you go pick up a pack of cigarettes. I know. <laughs> yeah, right? Jeez. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no okay. my dad's wonderful and is always on. It's good. <laughs> uh, 15 minutes after Speck walked out the door, two detectives walked in. They showed the clerk and manager a photo of Speck. The manager, Mrs. Hollinger, said, It's him. It's Richard. He just left. The Star Hotel. Rooms were 85 cents a night. It was a place divided into windowless cubicle-type rooms. In the cubicles was a cot, footlocker, and it was covered with chicken wire. It smelled of booze, puke, sweat, and feces. Seemed like everyone in there was coughing or puking. Speck just dropped his stuff onto a cot and left to meet up with his new friends. They sat on the fire escape, drank, and told stories. One Eye had hopped on a freight train into town, and Speck kept asking him how he did it, so One Eye agreed to show him the ropes. One Eye had a strange feeling about Speck, though, and didn't like how pushy he was. The next morning, Speck banged on One Eye's door, ready to hop a freight train, and One Eye told him he would meet him downstairs, but instead totally ditched him. Yeah! 
See how you like it. One Eye's doing his laundry <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, Speck decided that he was going to do it anyway. He could totally just hop a freight train, right? Before he did, though, he found good old One Eye and again bugged him to teach him how to hop a freight train. One Eye told him no. He wanted to stay in Chicago and make more money as a day laborer. Speck gave up and just sold some of his stuff instead. Then, July 19th, five days after the massacre, homicide commander Flanagan gets a call. He had been on the streets looking for Speck all night. The fingerprint expert had matched Speck's fingerprints to the prints at the crime scene. This was incredible news. The word got around and some of the officers just flat out were in tears. They were all exhausted by the manhunt and the investigation all around. And now it was paying off. Speck would be caught soon. The team from the case were sent to the state's attorney's office to get an arrest warrant. They met with state's attorney Daniel P. Ward, Louis Garlipo, criminal division chief, and assistant state's attorney William J. Martin. Ward was concerned about press. I mean... I would be, too. The number of times the press has hurt a case instead of helped it. Right. So Ward spoke with police chief Wilson to go over guidelines. Or rather, he would have liked to. Unfortunately, he was too late. The press conference literally started while Ward was on the phone. The public now knew the identity of the murderer, Richard Speck. Speck was selling his stuff at this time, down on Skid Row. Sorry, my brain was like, yeah, you pronounce that perfectly. Yeah, we pronounce that right. Nope. My favorite thing. All right. Oh, that's my shirt. Nicole can't pronounce things, but she tries. No, Uh, All words are made up. That's the shirt. Uh, all words are made up. All, all, all words them. are made up. And now I like the saying, that's the shirt, instead that's of saying that's the, the T. <laughs> that's the that's shirt. The shirt. Yeah. Um, that's the bumper sticker. My wonderful partner said that um, if anyone ever gets mad at someone for mispronouncing a word, they just need to remember that they learned that by reading it. Yeah. So right. they are reading it. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Anyways, all he wanted to do was drink. But as he was shopping for his booze, he noticed the newspaper. His name and photo were all over them. Uh-oh! Uh-huh. He bought the wine, went back to the Star Hotel, drank the whole bottle, yes. went to the bathroom down the hall, broke the bottle, and cut his wrists and inner elbow. He went to his friend One-Eyes Cot and laid there bleeding, because he didn't want to go to his own because he was still trying to hide who he was. Even though his photo was everywhere, and if anyone looked at him, they would know he was Richard Speck. I don't know. As he laid there with the newspapers everywhere around him, he couldn't escape the image of him on the page. He cried out for water and help, but he was ignored. It was one eye who found Richard in his cot trying to kill himself. He was out after work when he saw the newspaper with Speck's face on it. He went back to the Star Hotel to find him and found him. He did. Uh, One Eye called the police, not giving him his name, of course. He told them the man they wanted was at the Star Hotel, but the police did not dispatch a car. Speck was rushed by ambulance to Cook County Hospital, which is the same one that held the nurses' bodies. I know. I know. 
The driver hadn't taken notice of the bulletin yet that was out for Speck, and Speck just laid there in the back crying out for water, but he was ignored. He was not rushed there by the police, it was a separate call. So the nurses who helped him had no idea who he really was at first. He just was another injured dude in the emergency room. Nurse Kathy O'Connor prepped him, and Leroy Smith, a first-year resident, looked over his injuries. That's when he noticed something familiar about him. He noticed markings on Speck's arm, and this first-year used his own spit to clear off the blood looking for a tattoo, and he found it, born to raise hell. In the newspaper description under Speck's photo, it said, Male white. 25, 6'1", 160, brown, blonde hair, slightly longer than crew cut, blue eyes, tattoos, born to raise hell upper left arm, a hat and goggles, on right forearm, a dagger and a sickle, his acne scars on face, wanted on warrant for murder of eight nurses at 2319 East 100th Street, RD E208706, Homicide Sex Area 2. Smith told the nurse to go grab the newspaper he had left in the other room. He compared the photo to Speck, who again asked for water. Smith grabbed him by the back of the neck with all of his strength and said, Did you give water to the nurses? And threw his head down on the gurney. Nice. Mm-hmm. A police officer who was down the hall guarding another patient was called over. Smith told him that this was the man wanted for murder. The police officer made the calls. They got him. Speck was actually super well taken care of because it was more important that he be brought to justice than die in the hospital. Yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. say, like, it's almost better yeah, we that want they didn't know answers. right away. Absolutely. Yeah. It took... Probably not answers. <laughs> but we want them, but we want all, them all the same. Anyway. Yeah. It took two hours to get him ready for surgery since he severed an artery. And by that time, there was a dozen officers and assistant state's attorney Martin making their way down the halls of that hospital to surgery. Martin basically camped outside of Speck's room at the hospital. Since he was drugged up on pain pills, he didn't want anyone to get a statement from him while he was in this state. It was super important that Speck be deemed competent to stand trial. It was also important that the key witness, Cora, keep her head about her. They didn't want her to lose it or leave the country and return to the Philippines out of fear. She was kept out of the media's eye by Martin, and they even brought in her mother and cousin to Chicago for support. They were put up in an apartment that's location remained top secret. It was not an easy task. The media and even the Philippine government wanted Cora. There was so much money that could have been made with appearances, book deals, blah, 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 blah. Leave the poor girl alone, you vultures. Mm -hmm. Martin had a trick up his sleeve when it came to Speck. They needed Cora to identify him as the attacker. So Martin arranged for her to go into the room dressed as a nurse from the hospital. Speck was in recovery and completely oblivious. Cora went on rounds with another nurse until they made it to Speck's room. Cora was in there for about three and a half minutes to observe him. She came out of the room and went up to the detectives and Martin, and she said, it's really him. And then she was overwhelmed with emotions and fell to the floor. Mm. I know. How brave. Ugh, I know. so brave to, like, even just put on the nurse uniform mm-hmm. right after all that happened mm-hmm. and then walk and be in front of him. Yeah. That's so crazy. Absolutely. I even wrote that. I can't imagine what that would have been like. All those memories rushing back from such a horrific night. And she kept herself together and stayed clear of the media and anything else that could have hurt her case all the way up until her court appearance. 
Now the case against him grew. They have fingerprints, no real alibi from Speck about his whereabouts at the time of the murders, Cora's identification, witnesses putting him at that location, the knife had been found in Calumet River, a t-shirt worn by Speck that had been left at the crime scene, and even semen that was identified as Speck's. Speck did not admit to the murders. He would speak with psychiatrist Marvin Zaporin and say things like, I must have done it if everybody says I did. He stuck with that story of being too blackout drunk and high that night. He was found competent to stand trial by a group of psychiatrists. He was sane, but a sociopath. Martin asked Jim Graminos to question Cora. He was a former FBI agent, and at the time, he was an assistant public defender. When Cora was finally questioned, she was ready. Jim left no stone unturned when he questioned her. She was basically emotionless when she answered. I mean, you kind of have to be. You have to separate yourself, or else how could you even give all that horrific detail and in front of people just staring at you? By the end of her questioning, she had given a 133-page testimonial. She did it. Her part was done, and now all she could do was wait. Gerald Getty was Speck's public defender, and something kind of fun that I read about uh, was that Martin had actually applied to work for Getty years back, um, but was never asked to join his office. Martin did really admire Getty and his work, and now they were in court together. Getty would try to suppress evidence through 24 motions, one of which was if Speck should be tried for one murder at a time or all of them at once. So before I get into what they did, what do you ladies think is better and why? God. I don't know. It's hard because it's like, do you want the jury to hear the abundance of everything that happened? Therefore, like being like, whoa, yeah, no, okay, we're going to put him away for life. Or do they think they could even get like, what if they don't put him away for life? Right, and that would so be it's the worry, like, right? Yeah, could we, like, but could we get eight different tries to put him away kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I get that, right? Because there's always that worry of the one thing in the case that's like, like there's this one thing of a girl finding um, finding a child porn on her boyfriend's uh, phone, but she his phone was password protected and she got into it and found it. So because she found it that way, that stuff gets thrown out. Right. Uh-huh. So like, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's that fear too. That like, I think Casey Anthony and even um, Co- Cosby were thrown out for like weird reasons. Like mm-hmm. where it was like some weird, like, like there's like something that doesn't add up. So all of them get thrown out at once. Like that's something that I guess I would be worried about is like doing something in a way that would get everything fucked yeah, mm-hmm. like right. throw your whole thing out, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's like it's almost like you just gotta go one way or the other depending on the times that you're living in mm-hmm. and what you think your jury's gonna be willing to mm-hmm. listen to, I guess. Because sometimes they get burnt out. And That's like, true. They will stop at one thing or two things. So the general thought is, uh, you um, if you try to do individuals for such a massive number of victims, the chances of a mistrial on them is much higher because of how horrible and violent each is. Evidence might be too much for the jury to really focus on throughout. Mm-hmm. The example that they gave in the article I read was a father murdered his wife and two children. Each would be done as an individual trial. So he received various types of sentencing for two of the trials and then the death penalty for the last one. The man's lawyer argued that it was the burden the jury had on them that caused the death penalty sentencing at the end. Going through all of the things throughout the trial was so heavy that basically by the last one, they just gave him the death penalty, Mm -hmm. which is what the prosecution wanted. So that kind of messed up that whole case. Right. Yeah. So Martin left it open. 
He would be fine with whatever the defense decided. So Getty wanted a single trial for all the murders. And that's what they did. Another of the motions was that Getty insisted that they hold the trial outside of Chicago, saying that Speck would not receive a fair trial if they stayed there. Exactly. Because of media coverage, all that jazz. We all know that. We Chicagoans, we talk. You talk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he won that motion. Um, The judge, though, continued to be the same judge, however, even once they moved to Peoria, a three-hour drive from Chicago. There's nothing there. Nothing there? Been there, done that. There's nothing there. Well, this was there. (laughs) Lovely little town of nothing. Well, it seems like a perfect place for (laughs) respect. So um, the... The judge had been the judge all the way through preliminaries, and he had placed a gag order on the press. The Chicago Tribune filed suit against him in the Illinois Supreme Court for freedom of press, but the gag order held. (laughs) Fifty people made the first cut of the jury section out of 609. The final 12 were picked on March 30th, 1967. It took six weeks of questioning, and Speck sat through all of it. He, of course, wasn't phased. He just sat there bored and uninterested. The players were all assembled. Bill Martin, uh, George Murtaugh, Jim Zagel, and John uh, Glenville were the prosecution team. Cora, her mother, and cousin were able to get to Peoria without attracting media attention. Witness, who saw Speck looking at the house, a bunch of bartenders, rooming house clerks, taxi drivers, bar patrons who drank with Speck, the women from Cabrini Green, the sex workers Speck stole the gun from, experts and detectives were all in Peoria and held up in the Ramada Inn. The trial began April 3rd, 1967, and it was a Monday. Hey! Monday! It's a Monday. Monday. A Monday in April. 1967. The room was packed with random folks who just wanted to know more and the families of the nurses. Martin took 75 minutes to talk about how Richard Speck systematically murdered each of the women who should have had bright futures as nurses. It's not easy to do that, but to also know that the families are in the room while you're saying all of that? It said that he looked over and he saw Gloria Davies' dad filled with shock and horror as the images of his daughter's final moments flashed in front of his eyes. I know, it's just awful. Um, there were, of course, important pieces of evidence that could not be used. The gun had been obtained in an illegal search, and unfortunately, Martin knew that the sex worker's testimony would be seen as questionable because people are awful um, and don't trust things. Sex work is work, and what they experience is important. Um, We always talk about that. The T-shirt that was found at one of the rooming houses had blood on it, but one of the detectives had also cut himself so it could be seen as contaminated. I guess when he opened up the suitcase that was Specs, he cut himself on it, and it would be too risky to still use it as evidence. Getty accused the police of planting smudgy fingerprints at the scene and claiming they were Specs. But Getty didn't know that Joe Cummings, the radio dude, had seen the clear prints before the detectives even arrived. And I guess that moment made Martin so mad he, like, threw his pen down and it slid across the legal pad. Um, All the evidence didn't really matter, though. Cora was what was most important, the only witness and the sole survivor. When they were done questioning her, they asked her to identify the man who killed her friends. She calmly stood up, walked out of the witness box, walked up to Speck, looked him in the eye and said it was him. Mm. Did that face Speck? Of course not. He sat there uninterested and bored. 
He had a suit on and black sunglasses. Just trying to be some cool dude. Get over yourself. On April 15, 1967, after 49 minutes of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. They found Richard Speck guilty of all murders. The judge gave Speck the death penalty on June 5, 1967. He avoided it, however. The Supreme Court actually changed its ruling on capital punishment. He was resentenced to 400 to 1,200 years in prison, eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years. On November 21, 1972, then in 1973, there was a new statutory maximum of 300 years. None of that actually mattered, though, because on December 5, 1991, he had a massive heart attack and died. When they did the autopsy, they found he had an enlarged heart and closed-up arteries. No one claimed his body. He was cremated, and his ashes were put in an unknown place. In May 1996, a news anchor for CBS Chicago received a videotape. His name was Bill Curtis. The video was from Statesville Correctional Institute, and it was of Speck. He had gone through a hormonal treatment and now had breasts. He was wearing silk blue panties and having sex with an inmate. There were also images of drug and money exchanges with Speck in the middle of all of it. An inmate asked Speck about the murders off camera as well. Why did you kill the women? It just wasn't their night. How did you feel about the killings? Like I always feel. Had no feelings. He also said that he didn't feel sorry. He also added at one point, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. That was in regard to prison. He was doing drugs and seemed to be having a great time. When asked how it felt to strangle someone, he said, It's not like TV. It takes over three minutes, and you have to have a lot of strength. The video was later broadcast on the A&E Network's investigative reports and were used to argue for the death penalty. And one of the brothers, um, his name was John, said, It was very painful to experience watching him tell about how he killed my sister. Mind you, this video was uncovered in 1996. He was already dead. He still found a way to haunt them even after death. Simon and Garfunkel's song, Seven O'Clock News, includes the Richard Speck case. It's uh, the song They Sing Silent Night, and there's a bunch of radio broadcasts, and mm. one of them is the Speck case. The Cheap Trick song, The Ballad of TV Violence, is about Speck. It's even sung from the murderer's point of view. It was supposed to literally be called The Ballad of Richard Speck, but the band was concerned about the nurses' families. Another song they have is Born to Raise Hell, which might be a reference to the tattoo, but it's not confirmed. Macabre has a song called What the Heck, Richard Speck, Eight Nurses You Wrecked on their album Sinister Slaughter. Uh, there were paintings made of the nurses. There's a series called Eight Student Nurses by a German artist from 1966. Um, Zaza Speck, who is a former Marilyn Manson member, took their first name and combined it with Richard's last name. In 2002, there was a movie called Speck, which is literally about the cases. Um, I have the link to the songs and my resources if you want to check them out. And that, my ladies and beans, is the horrible, horrible case of Richard Speck. Any final sips? Um, I, I would give a final sip, but I have to go do my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, but no, but uh, oh, but funny. in all seriousness, uh, my final sip is just like, can we give it up for Cora? Yeah, please? yeah, like, yeah. What bravery that took, and the fact that she not only just did it, but like nailed it. Yeah, I'm just. Oh yeah. 
there is no justice for this, unfortunately. Like, really, no matter what, there is no justice for this. But she gave us whatever, like, what little justice there could be. Like, she did all mm-hmm. that she could for her friends. And I just hope that she's at least proud of herself for that. And mm-hmm. I know that it's hard, but, like, I don't know. Give it up for Cora. Mm-hmm. That was that's yeah. my final sip. Incredible. Yeah. Um, alcoholism can be a sign of anxiety. Um, mm. Like, especially alcoholism on, like, a social thing right like uh, you can you can drink a lot you can be so nervous about being out or have a whole thing where you tie alcohol with um with the idea that i i wouldn't normally act this way it's like an excuse it can just be tied in with an excuse to either like loosen up or whatever it is so it makes me wonder um just the the what how he used it as an excuse but then also how he probably used it because he was he could. He had a bunch of shit happen in his life. You know, it could have started as that kind of. Doesn't excuse. I'm not trying to excuse his actions. No. It's more so like it's very interesting that alcohol played a very um, like a through line throughout that whole thing, mm-hmm. and then he pretty much died because of it. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> enlarged heart and messed up arteries. Like mm-hmm. that'll do it. Like so, if it wasn't going to be that, it was going to be some sort of liver problem or cirrhosis oh, or yeah. something, kidneys. So, um, just. The interesting, it's uh, senseless, baseless uh, violence, and it was just a opportunity thing. So, mm-hmm. um, my final sip is just uh, if you find, if you yourself are somebody that is seeing that you are um, drinking a lot and doing a lot of things, like feeling embarrassed after you drink and stuff like that, it might be interesting to kind of take a look at um, like anxiety um, and social anxiety and all that, all that jazz to. Mm-hmm kind of get to the root of it and um, unknit that knot, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, if it's a knot and it's annoying and it's a thing and you're ashamed of it, you are the first person that's capable of helping yourself out with it. So mm-hmm. uh, just throwing that in there as an offering um, to this offering Offer? story. Uh, <laughs> awful. Awfuling. That's a really lovely sip, ladies. Um, I wrote this. Um, people are unpredictable. It's important to pay attention to what's going on around you when you're out and about and because you never really know. Sometimes, though, things happen and there is no way to prepare for it. And that's awful, but you should never beat yourself up for it because if it's something that could have been avoided, you probably would have. It's Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just can't and you have to kind of, I don't know, it's not that you need to embrace it, but it's just you need to be kind to yourself and not beat yourself up because of someone else's actions that you were unfortunately a part of. Um, thinking on your feet is a great skill, but it's really hard to do. And sometimes we're so scared or so confused that we can't think on our feet and that's okay. We're human beings. Um, it's hard to, with this case, like he never really gave any warning signs. Like there were things, his family didn't even really notice a lot of these things. Like they didn't think, or maybe even see his drinking problem. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I don't really know what happened. And it's just, it's really awful. All of it. It's all, and always is. It's true crime. It's always awful. Everything is awful. Um, my other sip is, of course, about the death penalty. Yeah. Um, I've always always say this: no one has the right to say who can live and who can die. And when it came up that that video is being used to advocate for the death penalty, I got so mad that I literally screamed at my computer because why was the first thought not, "Hey, maybe we should reevaluate the prison system because of everything he's getting away with"? Yeah, that's the other thing, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, you'd think- 
it's that it's that confirmation bias, man, where you know they they had the warplanes go out and mm. they brought back the ones that have holes and they're like, we should make sure that we reinforce where the holes are. And it's like, no, you got to reinforce where they're not because we need to talk about the ones that didn't come back, right? Yeah. right. So it's that like, oh, of course we need to we need to fix the death like death penalty and just kill them all. And it's like, no, no, the system that he's getting drugs and having a good old time needs to be fixed. That's the like, problem. <laughs> That's the problem. The system is the problem. Yeah. The system is literally the problem. It's We've the talked about this before yeah. yeah it's that's that's it so i just got so mad at my screen when that happened i was like what 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 are you fucking kidding me just talking about how horrible the system is so many people sit on death row that shouldn't be there um either they are innocent or they are incorrectly um sentenced so on april 27th melissa licio was almost executed in texas in 2007 her two-year-old maria fell down the stairs while the family was in the process of moving and she died Melissa was taken into custody and aggressively questioned for over five hours. She repeatedly stated her innocence over a hundred times, but the police pushed and pushed her to exhaustion, and she said, I guess I did it. They took that confession and went to trial, and she was convicted and sentenced to death. Evidence came out later to help her case, and even jurors that condemned her wished that they hadn't. Our system is flawed, and we have sent way too many innocent people to their deaths. One, one is too many. Mm-hmm. Um, one in 10 people on death row are either innocent or incorrectly sentenced. And like I've said, no one has the right to tell someone that they don't get to live anymore. Speck was a horrible person and he should have been punished for his crimes. Yes, killing him wasn't going to change what he did and not fixing the prison system allowed him to basically party until his heart attack. The issue is the system. Ladies and beans, thank you so much for joining us for another <laughs> horrible story uh thank you chloe for pushing richard speck up the list and uh, thank you nicole for taking the time to write that one that was oh my gosh juicy thanks so, like, i mean like i, I was 18. familiar with the case but that was so much more than i knew that was oh, incredible thanks yeah. 18 pages i have i looked at a lot of different articles please uh check out the resources list i even listened to um this uh youtube documentary but they literally took an article from murderpedia.com and just read it. You know, I've come across a couple of yeah. those, and I'm like, if you're not going to be with Just give just, credit. Just give credit. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, that just was tell my... me that you're like, hey, if you don't want to read Murderpedia, I will read it to you. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. I and got this fine. literally from Murderpedia. Yeah, some, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some yeah. Uh, other podcasts do say that. They flat out say that, which is great. I have an issue with, like, I didn't see that anywhere on the thing that I listened to. And it wasn't until, because I also like to look at Murderpedia.com, and I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. And then That's I went and I like to me. I was compared like, this it. really familiar. And I couldn't find them sourced anywhere. So I don't know. Mm. Um, but anyways, uh, check out the resources if you want to check out more information and listen to those songs. Um, the macabre one, not my personal t- uh, cup of tea, but still, you know, hey, I love music. Music is great. And actually, speaking of music, I've made a Spotify playlist oh, with yeah. all of the songs that we've referenced in our podcast um, including songs about coffee Yay! because that's fun. We it's love fun coffee. to break things up with coffee in between Gary Gilmore's eyes. eyes. <laughs> oh my God. Classic. Ah, speaking of coffee, I could use some right yeah, now. Thank you so much, beans and ladies. And uh, we look forward to you all joining us again next time on Morning 
Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram. At Morning Murders. That's at M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discussed around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank you for listening! version of those oh, like, i'm sure i want a yeah. morning murders clap fan yeah <laughs> get that on merch sick what would it say on it get a lawyer mm. lawyer get up. a lawyer <laughs> lawyer, lawyer up, up. <laughs> lawyer up. <laughs> i do like that That's i know funny. my rights I'm trying to think of things that we that we say like it's just a long thing about why the death Tap penalty that. is stupid. Yes, like, oh that's all it is, whole, just the death penalty. And it gets longer as you open it. Yeah. Like like right here, you just open the one fan a little bit. I wish you guys could actually see. I'm doing a whole demonstration of how many open it's like uh, the death penalty, and then the next thing it's like doesn't help anyone. Yeah, oh, <laughs> as you open it, gets longer and longer, and it's an entire. I bet you there's an entire. You write your sips sometimes. I do write them. We can write, put them all Just find it and just final all my death penalty sips. Final sips. Death penalty final sips. You're a hoe. Yeah. That's my final sip. You're a hoe. Congratulations. Congratulations. You're a hoe. Congratulations. Hey, man, it's just important to be a person of industry, so be a hoe. Be a hoe. Be whatever your heart desires. The other day someone was like, do you spell hoe, H-O-E, or H-O? They did like a... Uh, poll yeah my brain today mm-hmm. they did a poll uh on their instagram like, how do you spell ho is it like you a ho you a ho h-o ho that's santa claus too um i have a good question after this it's along the same lines uh h-o-e okay yeah, yeah. i want to say i started as an h-o-e mm-hmm. and then sometimes it's just more fun for me to be like ho because mm-hmm. it's like you a ho h-o-e mm-hmm. you a ho Mm-hmm. Oh, H-O. I understand the difference. I don't know. No, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes that's a good. There's, that's a valid argument. Yeah, that is a valid argument. Also, like, sex workers uh, work ho- and uh, hoes are incredible. No, yeah, this absolutely. is like, yeah, like yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, like I say ho as like like H O to me is like you're my 
fucking, you're my hoe. Yeah. Like, you're an amazing, strong Wonderful female amazingness. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I mean that in a positive way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, of course. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> like, I mean you know. this in a good way. I feel like sometimes I wish I could say two things at the same time with my mouth. Like, mm-hmm. you know how sometimes it's like, this thing is terrible. And then when you say, like, something is terrible, they go like, but what about this thing? And you're like, it is also a terrible thing. If I could say two things out of my mouth at the same time, mm-hmm. like, you know, being like, ho, I'm trying to use it as empowering, and I understand that sex work is work, and it's awesome, but you can only say one let thing Let me finish for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, hold yeah. on, mouth, let yeah. me do it all. Let me, <laughs> let me put everything out there. I was going to ask, how do you spell donut? Oh, shit. Okay. Well, because it, it should be D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is a right. dough nut. Do. But... It is Do normally, it. like, people put, like, pink box donuts, like, D-O-N-U-T-S, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, there was one time I watched, I used to watch a lot of, like, old <laughs> travel channel shows, like, uh, the old ones that were just, like, you know, Samantha Brown going around town and stuff and going to traveling and stuff. And they went to Portland, and they went to Voodoo Donut, and they asked <gasps> him, like, yeah. They have vegan donuts there. That's awesome. Yeah. They asked, uh, how do you spell donut? And they said, we spell it D-O-U. G H N U T because it's made of dough and not of dew. Ah. Uh, so that, that's a, that was the joke they made. And so I like that. Stuck that. With me. I like the um, visually D O N U T. Awesome. Love I it. Think that's visually how I've beautiful. Spelled it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's beautiful. Donut spelled all the way out. Bullshit. But it's fancy. I know. There isn't even like a cool reason for it online i tried looking up it's literally just exactly what we said like well you know if you look it up in a dictionary it'll always be d-o-u but and it's yeah. just like an americanized term mm-hmm. we've just accepted that that's like also a fine spelling i'm like really you know, though? be real i didn't even put those together <laughs> man yeah. well, well that's donut like is a variant D-O-N-U-T. This this particular one, Merriam Webster says that most dictionaries enter donut as a variant of donut. Mm. Ah, um, I understand. Along those lines, oh, because it's the brand Dunkin' Donuts is spelled. Mm. Oh. So the brand name. It's like Kleenex, like became the mm. thing. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. That's it's, true. That's and true. now we know. <laughs> the more you. I can't finish it. It's copyright. More you yeah, ho. <laughs> more you ho. The more you yes. <laughs> Wonderful. I only just recently put together that hyperbolic is the same as hyperbole. And I was like, oh my God, huh. I'm always being hyperbolic. <laughs> I was like, I was like reading up, like I was reading stuff. I was like, that's always me. I'm always being hyperbolic, ridiculous, overdramatic, and like <laughs> speaking in hyperbole. Always. It's like there's a word for that. It was really nice. It felt good. That's good. That's, that's, I'm proud of yeah. for what? I'm proud. I don't know why I'm proud. You should be proud of me. I'm proud. She's proud of you. Discovering who she is. Discovering I'm learning. Who you are. I'm learning things. The more oh. you. Oh. All right. Let's hear about Richard Schmiermiris. <laughs> no, we haven't even done our intro yet. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, let's we can we can stop uh, bullshitting and talk if you want. If Let, you want. I think Because I can so. talk to you guys forever. It's true. It's true. I'm sorry. I know. Really I know. I, was, I know. such a child. I know. You just immediately <laughs> locked eyes you with Anna. Like, I was like, don't look at her. I'm sorry. And I cracked a smile. Child. Don't okay. look at her. I'm okay. sorry. It's funny. At one. No.
I did that one. Are you making sure that the alien inside your chest is happy? <laughs> I am. Are you like, happy, Jess? Jess, are you okay? Uh, don't you don't burst out of my body. Taxi <laughs> club. Club? The, ta- the taxi club. And by that time, there was a dozen office nurse Office nurses? <laughs> <laughs> what was I about to say? Office nurses. Oh, my God. And by that time.